Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I hope everyone is having a great start to their summer. Not to jinx anything, but it seems so far that airlines and airports are also having a good summer. Sure, there have been lots of crowds, and a few nasty storms, and some travelers have suffered delays. But overall, things seem to be holding up. What do you think, Scott McCartney? Well, hello, Ben, and happy summer to you, too. Anecdotally, I, I think that's right. I, I've had some friends uh, delayed waiting for reserve pilots or waiting out storms, but all normal stuff. Uh, certainly nothing out of the ordinary so far. We don't have numbers on June because we still have another week plus to go, uh, but May on time stats were encouraging. Delta led the way among U.S. carriers at 88% in May, according to OAG. Alaska and American were also above 80% on time arrivals. The rest were all above 75%, except for Spirit, Frontier, and Hawaiian. I asked the folks at Sirium, the flight tracking data firm, for a quick read on how June is doing so far. Sirium says it's been a solid month so far. On-time performance is a touch below norms, hovering around 78% across the 10 major carriers. The ULCCs tend to drag that down a bit. So nothing really to report just yet. And in air travel, no news is usually good news. Sometimes shortages of planes and people build as summer goes on, and we'll hope weather and air traffic control staffing problems don't ruin a lot of vacations. Speaking of vacations, I'll be talking to Charles Duncan, the president of North Atlantic Airways, later in the show. Ben, before I came on board Airlines Confidential, you and Chris talked to Bjorn Tor Larson, the CEO of Norse, when it launched a year ago flying planes formerly operated by Norwegian Air Shuttle. Norse is an interesting discount option for flying across the Atlantic, and it's especially timely to catch up on the carrier's progress when it's been so expensive for Americans to fly to Europe this summer. Charles and I talked at the Aviation Festival Americas conference in Miami Beach, and I think you'll enjoy the discussion. Our producer, Charlie Shapiro, recently flew north and returned with good reports about the affordable upgrade option. We also have some interesting listener reaction to issues we've been talking about, and we'll get to that. But first, news of the week. The battle over the perimeter rule at Washington's Reagan National Airport is heating up. United, American, and Alaska all opposed any change in the restrictions. Delta has been pushing for long-haul flights from DCA. And this past week, a Senate committee reached a bipartisan deal 
to add slots for four new flights. DCA has a 1,250-mile perimeter limit that dates back to the early 1960s, but exceptions have been added over the years. It was designed to force long-haul traffic to fly out of Washington, D.C. from Dulles International Airport. Everyone's lining up on one side or the other, the local congressional delegations and local neighborhoods oppose adding more flights to DCA. United wants to protect the sub at Dulles. Delta wants to provide easier access to Washington, D.C. from the West Coast. American is the most interesting. It has a dominant slot position at DCA and so probably doesn't want more competition there. That's probably why it's opposing the expansions. Stay tuned on this one. Yeah, I really think this is interesting, Ben. You know, this is a really an anti-consumer rule. Um, any kind of restriction that doesn't allow the market to uh, meet the demand that's there really does hurt travelers. So I think, and, and in this case, the airports are owned by the federal government, not locally owned. And so it's difficult to balance all the competing interests here in Congress. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, I think the situation in Dallas with Love Field is, is really pretty similar in the sense that uh, it came time because Southwest was growing because Love Field was building a new terminal. It really became clear that the restrictions on Love Field were outdated. And I think that's the case with the perimeter rule at DCA. It took local leadership to really step up and, and come up with a comprehensive uh, settlement, a compromise. And some sort of compromise needs to be reached here. I'm not sure Congress is the place to do that, but I think because of the ownership of the airport, Congress is probably the only place to do that. So it's really going to be tough. That's right, Scott. And the one thing that is unique about DCA, even to the Love Field situation, is that there are over 500 elected officials who want to vote and then fly nonstop back home. Yeah. And if they don't have their nonstop flight from DCA, their life isn't as good. And so that's the group that's controlling what happens at this airport. Yeah, and the perimeter rule really promotes those nonstop flights to their hometown as opposed to major long-haul routes uh, that more travelers, more vacationers would want to go to, either to visit D.C. or to get out of D.C. But uh, you really end up running it for uh, the politicians and not the consumers. Well, that's right. There's an exception for Phoenix that was all because of John McCain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ben, the DCA perimeter rule is just one of the big aviation issues going on right now in Washington. It's going to be a summer of aviation policy. Congress hopes to get the FAA reauthorization bill done 
before the end of September, maybe even in the summer. So lots of issues are brewing in D.C. There's a push by some influential members to raise the retirement age for pilots to 67 from 65 to ease the pilot shortage a bit. A House panel approved that change last week, but like the perimeter rule, a lot could change before the final law gets written. The Airline Pilots Association called the proposal a, quote, politically driven choice that betrays a fundamental understanding of airline operations, the pilot profession, and safety. Ironically, the same might be said for the rule Congress passed requiring first officers at airlines to have 1,500 hours in their logbooks, just like captains. The 1,500-hour rule is also getting rung through the congressional meat grinder this summer, and we'll watch for any changes. To me, Ben, the problem with all of this is that Congress is making rules that the FAA should be handling. There's no evidence that the 1,500-hour rule increases safety. It was a political decision by Congress reacting to a terrible accident in upstate New York, which, by the way, had nothing to do with pilot inexperience. Likewise, let's see some research on how 67-year-old airline pilots function before just having elected officials codify what their airline constituents want them to put in place. The debate that really makes me crazy is seat size and safety. Research in the U.S. and around the world shows that, sad to say, airplane seats squeezed closer together with less legroom are actually safer than seats spread out. In an accident, you're going to hit the seat in front of you. So if you travel less distance to get there, the impact may not be as severe. When a plane evacuates, the restricting factor is the door. Passengers back up in the aisle. So getting out of your tight row is not an issue. You just wait in the aisle longer to evacuate. Yet Congress and others continue to push the scientific fallacy that tight rows are a safety issue. It's a comfort issue. It's a political issue. I suppose since we've had several secretaries of transportation who have done very, very little for travelers, that Congress now feels like it should go ahead and make the rules. Now I'm stepping down from my soapbox, Ben. (laughs) That's a good soapbox, though, Scott, and I agree with you. It's interesting about the safety of tighter seats versus more spacious seats. And the idea of following the science when it supports our political view and ignoring the science when it doesn't is something that's much bigger than just the airlines. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. One other news note I wanted to ask you about, Ben. JetBlue unveiled a new livery, a handsome blue plane with white, turquoise, and green squares, I guess, in the tail area. I also like the white plane with the blue tail, the conventional JetBlue livery. I guess JetBlue should have blue jets. But I always wonder why airlines change liveries. As Doug Parker once said, no one buys a ticket for the paint job. Since you're on the JetBlue board, can you give us any insight into why the change and why the new blue design? 
Well, I certainly can't talk specifically about the JetBlue new design, even though I'm biased, but I think it looks gorgeous, right? Yeah. Um, the reality is when planes go in for a heavy check, the paint all gets stripped and the plane gets repainted anyway. So if you're going to repaint the plane, if you want to repaint it in a new kind of livery, it's not especially more expensive. At Spirit, for example, when we went from a more traditional livery to the bright yellow planes everyone sees now, that not only we thought looked better, not everyone agrees, of course, but it was actually cheaper because the old livery required paint on paint to get a certain checkered color and things. The yellow was just one shot of paint over the whole thing. The plane weighed less because the weight of the paint was less without painting over paint. So there's lots of reasons to change livery, to make it more efficient, to express a refreshed brand or something. Doug's right. Nobody buys a ticket because of the paint job. But planes are painted, so when you have to paint, why not think about what's the right look? It's an interesting management thing. I suppose you do it because you, you want employees to think this airline's changed or more modern or whatever it might be. And maybe it's an ego thing. You want to you know, sort of make it clear that um, it's not the old guard in in uh, in charge here, or you know, make customers feel like uh, the the airline is really up to date, uh, some something like that. I, I I suppose I could see how there would be management reasons um, more than marketing reasons to to go ahead and make a change. Well, and this is kind of cynical, Scott. But it's also something that they can decide and just do. Mm. And there are not many things like that in the <laughs> airline business. Yeah. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Dohop which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, it lowers their costs, and they maintain full customer ownership. 
Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with the airlines and their customers to offer assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Now I'm delighted to introduce Charles Duncan, who became president of North Atlantic Airlines earlier this year. Charles is a veteran airline guy with stints at WestJet, Swoop, United, and Continental. We are delighted to have Charles Duncan with us today. Charles is the president of Norse, Norse Atlantic Airways. He is a veteran of Continental, United, and WestJet. Charles is one of the more knowledgeable people you'll ever find in the airline business and uh, fascinated that you've taken on the challenge of transatlantic startup. A year ago, listeners will recall, we had uh, Bjorn Toro Larson on, the founder and CEO of Norse. BT, as, uh, as people call him. So we thought it would be great to have Charles give us an update on uh, how things are going with Norse. Uh, it's a fascinating time with summer transatlantic travel demand surging. Right. Uh, and so I suppose things are going well from the demand perspective. But tell us uh, how things are going for Norse. Absolutely. Well, Scott, thanks for the uh, invitation to join. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Listen uh, every week in uh, in my car and just, just a real privilege uh, to be joining you. So thank you and thanks for all the great work that uh, you and Ben do on the podcast. Um, it is a uh, an exciting summer for us as we transition at Norse. Um, Last winter, and and when BT joined uh, the podcast, we were in a very different place. We had one AOC at that point in time, which was a Norwegian AOC, and uh, and we uh, didn't get our UK AOC until late in the fall, which meant and then that uh, we were having to fly a Fifth Freedom flight in order to fly London Gatwick to JFK. Last winter, we had to originate the airplane in Oslo and fly to Gatwick, and then continue on to JFK, which was not the best use of a seven eight seven flying a two hour flight uh, between Oslo and Gatwick. And uh, uh, and we also did a whole lot of what I like to call cold to cold flying in the winter, which was driven by the traffic rights and our AOCs as well. So think about Oslo to JFK, Berlin to JFK. These are markets that um, do great in the summer, not so strong demand in the winter. And so we've learned a lot, but we also um, didn't have the flexibility uh, in our first year with traffic rights to fly the network we wanted to fly. So as we start this summer, absolutely. AOC for listeners who might not know. Yeah, thank you, Scott. It's funny. Uh, yes, and AOC is, an, is, is our certificate, our air operator certificate. And yeah. so it's the license to operate. So so we have two AOCs. We are a Norwegian um, operator and a UK operator under common ownership and a corporate group, uh, but but uh, but two different licenses. And the traffic rights uh, to fly where we want to fly is ultimately driven by those AOCs and yeah. our, and, and, and so forth. But great question or great, great uh, stop. And um, I've heard you, uh, in fact, in last week's, you uh, called out F. FNB was an acronym that was uh, used by you know as well, so I fell into the same trap that uh, that, that others before me have. But uh, but listen, uh, as we start the summer, um, it, it's a really an exciting time. We have 15 aircraft in our fleet, but we were only flying three of them this past winter. We're going to be flying 10 this summer, and the remaining five are actually um, leased out, uh, dry leased out to another European operator. So we're flying the the complete fleet that we have access to uh, from five cities in Europe and connecting with seven cities in the U.S. And uh-huh. so it's a very full, active schedule. Um, 
and demand, as you said, as you expected, is really strong. And to be honest, um, we're at a pivot point right now where our operating team is focused on, on, on opening up airports and preparing for this really big ramp up in operations, while our commercial team has more or less left the summer behind and, and focused on the winter because um, the name of the game here is to really just even be break even or have very, very small losses in the winter because we'll be profitable in the summer. And right. for the business model to work, we have to address the winter. And so uh, half of our team is focused on the winter and shifting our network to have more sun flying, more warm destinations in those winter months, mm-hmm. uh, uh, You know, unlike what we did, the, did in our first winter. So I want to ask you about uh, some of the cities, but um, I'm curious about the fleet. Yep. So using 10 of the 15 airplanes, yep. is that simply because you didn't have the the staff, the um, the bandwidth yet as yep. a startup to, to fly all 15? Or is that sort of market-driven? There's just not the demand there for you yet. You know, uh, it, really the decision was uh, pragmatic, and I would say um, just you know risk mitigation, if you will. So mm-hmm. um, to just gradually ramp up the fleet uh, in flying so that we're, we're not taking on too much growth in, at, at one time. And uh, when I talk about the fleet, we, we have really great partners. We have two lessors in Aircap and Boca, Bank, uh, Bank of China Aviation. Um, and uh, with both of them, we, we um, because we uh, entered into negotiations and executed the leases at the bottom of the market in the depths of COVID in uh, in 2021, we got very attractive lease rates for one. Yeah. We also were able to negotiate power by the hour lease agree- arrangements for about 18 months. And so if we didn't fly the aircraft, we didn't pay lease expenses for them. Yeah. And so that that helped facilitate in a way that wouldn't be ordinary and normal course um, to gradually ramp up the flying. And so, uh-huh. as I said, our, in year one, effectively three aircraft were flying. This summer, we'll have nine aircraft flying and a tenth available as a spare because we uh-huh. also want to focus on reliability. And the other five aircraft um, are, are with a European operator who's operating them because they needed the lift mm-hmm. uh, with, with the delays in, in OEM deliveries. And we'll take delivery of those remaining five for the summer of 2024. So it's a way just to, to, to stage our growth and, and, and do it in, a, in a, a careful, cautious way so we're not doing too much too fast. And, and of course, Norwegian, where mm. those airplanes lived before, right. I, I, do we call it a, six, a predecessor airline? Or uh, You know, we, we do not. You know, it's yeah. funny. I mean, I, I, I'm asked that all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, one of these things that uh, yeah, I think between me and, and BT, and we probably was asked a year ago about it as well, um, we are, I mean, categorically not Norwegian Airlines. Norwegian right. uh, restructured, uh, you know, them, themselves, you know, during the, the COVID pandemic. They've gone back to their roots, if you will, as a short haul domestic and, you know, regional European carrier. Um, the only uh, point of, of commonality is uh, is the fleet. Uh, you know, you know, via the lessors. Right. The, you know, these aircraft were operated by Norwegian, uh, but we're a different business, different company, and, and frankly, uh, trying to you know implement a different strategy in a lot right. of ways. And the and the problem, one of the problems Norwegian had was too much growth, too fast. That's right. Um, uh, so. Too much, too fast. And and again, I mean, you know, outside in, too many AOCs. Uh, you know, yeah. back to that that acronym again. Yeah. Uh, and you know, at one point they were opening up business in Argentina and just doing so many things so complex we're trying to be focused simple low cost I believe we will be the lowest cost operator across the Atlantic uh, this summer and and, and that gives uh, a great competitive advantage for us but we, we the only way to keep it is to remain focused uh-huh. uh, on it and the other and, and we are um, unashamedly um, uh, you know un- unbundled in terms of our offering like other ULCCs are and um, I believe uh, as, as we look at our at our results we're number one in the industry in ancillary revenues we're exceeding 100 dollars per passenger right now which is another way for us to be successful 
successful and ensure uh, you know our, our long-term success. Wow, hundred dollars per passenger. Yes, indeed. That, that's a, that's that's remarkable. It really well, is. well, between carry-on bags, checked bags, uh, seat assignments, upgrades to our Norse Premium cabin, uh-huh. uh, along with we'll be adding other services uh, like airport lounges and as an additional fee, onboard food, uh, travel insurance. I mean, all these things add up and, and ultimately uh, you know into a margin of uh, you know hundred dollars uh, per passenger. Mm-hmm. So it's it's huge for the for the business model. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask you about mm. the premium cabin. Yeah. Um, you have a you have a large premium cabin. We do. With 56, 56 seats. seats. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And I, I've always been fascinated with premium economy. Yep. Um, I have heard from several airlines over the years that it is the most profitable real, real estate, estate on the airplane per square inch. Yes. If you, if you look. And, uh, you know, just as a traveler, it seems like. Uh, it, it's it's a product that's ideal in in many ways. I'm sure everybody yeah. would like a lie flat bed, of course, um, but not if it's ten thousand dollars out of your own pocket. Um, but pre- <laughs> premium economy uh, is you know is an alternative that I can go to sleep in. You can afford. Right? I well, can't go to sleep in a coach seat. You so. you nailed it, Scott. Uh, so we have a fantastic product. It's a forty three inch pitch, and and in my experience at Past Airlines as well, the premium economy cabin is the most profitable real estate uh, yeah. on the airplane. And what we've done, because we don't have, I mean, it, it is the best product for us and, and we branded it Norse Premium Class. And, and um, for people who are paying out of their own pockets, who are not on an expense account and billing it right. to someone else, uh, whether in, in, in this world with, uh, we talk a lot on the podcast about about the mix of business and leisure and so forth. Um, for the And, and um, I think about American Airlines firing their sales team and ripping up corporate agreements in this yeah. era of individuals paying for their own travel. I believe Norse Premium is, is just a fantastic offering, and, and, and we're seeing really good uptake, both um, uh-huh. when people make the booking, but also um, in the follow-up as we reach out through emails or even indeed at the airport, we'll sell an upgrade to the ticket counter, and uh, our team are doing a really good job in selling that. And it's a it's a 232 configuration. It's very much like it is. a premium economy you'd find on American or Delta or uh, other. You know, it's, it's actually um, a little bit more generous than, uh, than what you'll find a lot of the big guys, I, I think. I mean, as I've done my benchmarking, um, most of the other guys have about a 38-inch pitch. Ours is 43. Wow. But but it, it is a comparable seat, if you will, with, yeah. with a bit more leg room. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a generous recline. It's, uh, you know, has has a, um, a leg rest. We have, uh, you know, hot meals that are included in, in, in the service offering. But everything else is a la carte. So if you want to go to an airport lounge, you'll pay an extra fee for that. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so, you know, ultimately we just do that in a transparent way to, to you know, ultimately give the best value we can. Uh-huh. And, and premium economy is, what, a 50% upgrade, or about how much does yeah. it cost? You know, we, we've actually been playing around with, uh, you know, with, with what is the right price point, uh, you know, for it and, and varying it up. But, you know, I would say, you know, where we've landed right now um, is that, uh, you know, most of our competitors for a transatlantic are around $2,000 round trip um, for premium economy. And, and so we, we want to be a good bit underneath that. So we've been looking at, you know, 1800 somewhere in that range, nine, so 900 one way uh-huh. um, as, as being really good value and um, and and, and it, it does you know um, yeah I mean our economy fares can be as low as three you know 300 one way so it, so it depends on on the market depends on demand all the usual sort of uh, you know caveats there but I would say it can be maybe double but uh, our economy fares are quite low yeah okay 
And um, in terms of cities, yeah. where, where are you flying and what's, what's new, what's working? Sure. What's, well, I'll yeah. tell you, our, our two biggest cities are uh, London Gatwick, where this summer we'll have five daily departures uh, from London. We're the number one uh, carrier to the U.S. from London Gatwick this summer. So really, really excited about that. Five, yeah. five daily departures. I personally, uh, even back to my continental days, always preferred London Gatwick over Heathrow. It's a very user-friendly airport, easy access to the city center, and they've been great partners and supporters for us. So five daily flights from London Gatwick. We have four daily departures from JFK. So th th those are our two most important, our largest operations. Um, in addition to those, uh, we have four other cities in Europe, um, Oslo, Berlin, Paris and Rome, and uh, you know, and, and all of them uh, with service to JFK as well as other points you, you in the U.S. You picked the big ones. We did. This is and, not uh, secondary city no, stuff. No, you're exactly right. And then on the U.S. side, um, this summer we'll be in Boston, JFK as I mentioned, Washington Dulles, uh, Orlando and Fort Lauderdale, and then the West Coast, San Francisco and Los Angeles. So those are the seven cities on the U.S. side. And, and you know, you, you make the point, um, uh, we are focused on big major city airports. So um, we are not going to Stewart uh, or Newburgh. We're not, uh, you know, right now looking at uh, Ontario, California, or and we're flying to Orlando, not Sanford. Uh, you know, and for right. us, these airports... Um, the major airports will be more expensive, but um, and, and we are focused truly on being low cost and efficient, but what we have found is we don't want to have to explain to a consumer. It's a large wide-body airplane, and it's very difficult to explain, well, it's Stewart Airport, it's 70 miles away, here's a coach service to come in, um, that uh, for a wide body, it's just, it, we've got to be in the major city airports for passenger convenience and for cargo, because cargo is a big component of our business, uh, uh -huh. greater than 10% of our revenues. And in these smaller airports, there just isn't a cargo facility. There aren't handlers, and we would we would miss out on the cargo opportunity if we were in secondary airports. I'm, I'm curious about that. Is it hard for a startup to kind of build the cargo relationships how do people find that your belly space yeah, you know actually it's probably i would say it's even easier uh, on the cargo side as a startup than it is on the passenger side huh. mostly just because in our case we've hired a gsa who represent and sell our belly uh -huh. um and uh, and and they're a great partner named callus and so they do the sales for us and um and ultimately it's, it's b2b selling and um you know what we've typically seen is they want to see us operate for uh, you know a couple of weeks make sure we're reliable that you know we're going to deliver when we say we do and uh, and then they just turn the volume on and uh, because it's uh, it's boxes or you know ULDs and not passengers we don't have to worry as much or focus on brand marketing or how we sell and, and so forth and so it's it's fewer b2b relationships and uh, we've done really well I mean our, our Oslo flights are full of salmon coming to the US <laughs> you would not nice. believe uh, the volume of fish we're carrying across but also <laughs> Berlin has auto parts um, I mean, the commodities are just really, really interesting. And uh, yeah. um, but we, I mean, cargo has been an important component uh, for us and our success, and, and and why we're in the big city airports. <laughs> Many years ago, I was on the ramp at, at uh, Baltimore, Washington, yeah. and it was a, it was a Southwest flight from New Orleans, and they were unloading crab. Oh my! And, and I thought, whoa. All yeah. that Maryland crab is actually coming from Louisiana. Unbelievable. Um, so, yeah. um, but I'm glad to hear that the Norwegian salmon I'm buying at the grocery store actually is coming from Norway. You no, know, it is indeed. <laughs> it, 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 it is just an unbelievable volume. And, and a lot of it gets trucked to continental Europe. And so we, so us having a nonstop from Oslo is a big advantage for, for those uh, those salmon fishermen. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Um, the U.S. cities that you've picked. Mm -hmm. Very e obviously East Coast focused. Right. I've I've heard Ben say before, yeah. don't fly to the West Coast. It's a 
it's a longer flight and you're charging the same fares, right? right. It's going to be the same fare in San Francisco as it is in, in Washington or yep. Boston or wherever. And obviously it takes more fuel to get mm-hmm. to the, to the West Coast. You've got an airplane that can go a long way. So that, uh, that may be part of it. But um, were those cities on the West Coast just too big to pass up? Or, or why, why yeah. do that? You know, I think it's a combination of two things. I mean, you know, they are big cities that are hard to pass up. Um, you know, the, the other um, argument, you know, we are charging higher fares uh, you know, from the West Coast. So okay. I, would, I would probably contest uh, that with Ben. I mean, ultimately, and he knows, you know, uh, you know, far better than I about supply and demand and the pricing, uh, you know, dynamics in the market. But, but our fares to the West Coast are higher than our fares to the East Coast. And, uh, and we've also have seen a much greater interest in the Norse premium cabin uh, for the West Coast mm-hmm. as well. Cargo has been strong to those markets, too. And um, for L.A. in particular, we think that will have the potential to be much stronger for us as a year-round destination. So, you know, thinking of the sun component in the winter months as well, um, you know, unlike a Boston or even a Washington, you know, even New York, this, where the demand's much more seasonal, we're, we're looking at, at Southern California much like we are South Florida in being a year-round destination for us. It'll be important for our year-round success. Yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about fees. You mentioned $100 per passenger and all. Um, with the with the premium cabin, is it um, pay for everything or, or are you are you getting some stuff included with your fare in the premium you, cabin? You, you, you do. Um, yeah. So, so we actually have three different price points for, for both the economy and uh, the Norse premium cabin. And, uh, you know, our light product, which is at the bottom end, um, comes with just, and, and, and this is from memory now, you know, certainly a carry-on bag, um, but uh, but I believe that's it. And then on board the aircraft, it's, it's, the, it's the same meal service and, of course, you know, blankets and pillows and, and, and the basics, so it's food. You then would pay, um, we, we have a higher bundle that includes two check bags and uh, but no changes and then we have a, a higher bundle that actually has um, right up to departure date uh, you know complete change fees and uh, and even I believe an extra bag overweight bags just more generous baggage allowances so um, on, what we've tried to do to make it simple for our flight attendants is uh, to have the onboard experience be the same right. but then look to vary the pre-boarding in terms of the baggage allowances and the ability to change fees and so forth uh, varies quite a bit from from one price point to the other. And in coach, people are paying for soft drinks, meals, all that. They are. And and, uh, and we do offer up menus in advance, and we have a pretty good interest in uptake in that. People can choose what they want to buy and prepay for that, as well as on the airplane if they like uh, to to, to pick and choose. Interesting. Is is the traveling public pretty well accustomed to all that now? They're accepting of the notion of... Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm paying a lot for a ticket, but I got to pay extra for my diet coke. Uh, you know, I, I I believe they are. I mean, we'll, we'll certainly still occasionally have someone who's who's unfamiliar with the model, but then um, when they reach out to us, um, I mean, uh, even to me personally, I'll just explain them. I mean, you know, we will be. Uh, you know, unabashedly, uh, you know, the, the the cheapest player, you know, across the Atlantic. And when you look at the value overall that we deliver, uh, I think it's just fantastic. And we're allowing people who couldn't travel to travel or to travel more often. Those, uh, you know, those who couldn't. So, so I, but, but I think I think the acceptance of the model now is pretty pretty well known. Uh huh. And and one other thing, um, I, I'm curious what happens after this summer. Um, yeah. You mentioned, yep. you know, the goal is break even right. or whatever in the, the through the through the winter months. Sure. But, um, you know, last year uh, there was high demand for summer and everybody thought, 
oh no, uh, it's going to fall off. And it never did fall off. Right. Right. Do you think that's likely to happen again this year where there's going to be strong demand through the fall or is the economy softening and we maybe this year we are going to see a drop off? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my, my crystal ball is no better than yours or Ben's or anyone else's. Um, you know, we are... Uh, you know, guardedly optimistic and watch. I mean, this summer is strong. It is red hot. Demand is really strong. You know, when one um, warning sign that we are seeing, and, and we've heard competitors talk about this as well, is that um, when you look at uh, it, look at it by point of sale, um, the, we're selling a lot more tickets from the U.S. than we are from Europe. And, uh, and, and there have been, uh, you know, for every news story we read in the Wall Street Journal here in the U.S. about how cheap it is to go to Europe this year and how strong demand is, there are just as many stories on the European side talking about how expensive it is to come to the U.S. And when my <laughs> European colleagues visit, they are shocked at how expensive it is here in the U.S. right now. Uh, and we have monthly yeah. meetings where we flip back and forth. And so we have had a challenge just keeping a balance. And, and we've been, uh, you know, our marketing team has been working overtime to sell and focus more on the European side because the U.S. is so easy, frankly. Um, Wow. And, and, and for any route long haul, I mean, you want a 50-50 split, you know, to the degree you can. We're far from that right now, but we're working really hard to be as close to balance as we can. Interesting. Um, and so, uh, you know, so demand, we will pull capacity down as, as one does seasonally for the fall. And then, you know, I mentioned this for the winter and you talked about, you know, we, you know, we want to do more sun flying, uh, you know, in the winter months. And we announced a couple of weeks ago from London, we're going to have service to both Barbados and Jamaica. Each of those will be daily. They're big, thick markets, almost like a London JFK in the summer. There are a lot of British folks who go both leisure and VFR, visiting friends and relatives, uh, you know, in that market. And uh, and we also announced Oslo to Bangkok. Um, Thailand is hugely popular among the Scandinavian population. And and we announced that route and we've been selling those seats like hotcakes uh, from Oslo to Bangkok. So we're doing more sunfly, more interesting things. And my mantra internally has been to tell the team that, again, the summer is relatively easy. And of course, the team roll their eyes because we're, I mean, it's a lot of work. But, uh, you know, I say we should be spending nine or 10 months of each year focusing on the winter. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, the business will succeed or fail uh, based on how we perform in the winter months. Yeah. And, and, and so that really is the focus. Uh, we talked, you mentioned my background at Continental. Um, yeah. Greg Brenneman and Gordon Bethune had the go forward plan. Uh, and this is my first, you know, my first job as an employee. And it was a four pillar plan. And, and I've actually ripped that off and uh, and, and, sure. and and copied it at North. We call it our, our, our North Star document. You're not the only one. No, and and, uh, and, and we shared it with every employee, just as we did at Continental. And uh, and and our and our stated goal is that for the second half of this year, July to December, we want to make a buck. Just I'll be happy with a one dollar profit. We know Q3 will be great and strong, but how much will we give back in Q4? In effect, and uh, we want the whole team focused on, uh, on on a break even or better result for the second half of this year. And we think that'll then give us the momentum that we need going in, in, into next year. This, this once again proves uh, the the notion that airlines are really squirrels. It, it's all <laughs> it's all about how many nuts you put away for the winter, right? Uh, I, I, you you are so true, and especially I mean I learned this in Canada, you know as well. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the North Atlantic is, and Canada, the domestic market, are probably among the, um, the, the strongest seasonally in terms of this imbalance. Uh, the domestic U.S. a little bit less so. But it really, you're right, I like that squirrel analogy, and we've got to focus on that. Yeah, yeah. just being smart yeah. in, the, in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Charles, good luck. Um, it's Thank great you. to catch up, and uh, we wish you uh, great success in the summer and, uh, and that dollar profit in the winter. <laughs> Look forward to hearing more about Norse going forward. Hey, Scott, thanks so much. Really enjoyed this. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. 
Thanks again to Charlie for the great update on Norse. I'm looking forward to trying them at some point. Scott, in this week's mailbag, we heard from our friend Alex Wilcox, the CEO of JSX, who we recently had on the show. We talked recently how a battle was brewing with incumbent airlines starting to challenge the Part 135 scheduled charter operators. Listeners have responded, including Alex. He took issue with a listener who commented that customers may not understand that JSX is a public charter carrier and not an airline. Alex says JSX makes that very clear in different ways. Even if you miss the wording and the ticket disclosures, the fact that you go to a private FBO instead of an airline terminal makes it pretty darn clear to passengers that this is not a normal airline. Alex also responded to comments about security concerns. JSX does its own screening, not TSA. But Alex notes that JSX does participate in TSA's Secure Flight Advanced Screening Program. SkyWest, a regional airline, has applied to take advantage of Part 135 by creating SkyWest Charter. One of the big advantages is that Part 135 airlines can hire pilots with 250 hours of experience, while all airline pilots are now required to have 1,500 hours. But as most of our listeners know, it used to be 250 hours for first officers for airlines too. Scott, there's a lot of lobbying going on in Washington this summer. Some of it's going to be on Part 135. My view is that's a great section of the code, and we should allow operators to use that space to promote smaller planes and get pilots better training than they would carrying skydivers. Yeah, Ben, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of opportunity here uh, to to really have a, a comprehensive uh, pathway for pilots. Um, that uh, uh, that you're right. The, the Part 135 um, not only allows some creative options in the marketplace uh, for travelers, um, but also for pilot profession. Um, so I hope. Something good comes out of all that lobbying, and uh, and not just something more restrictive that would would uh, hurt consumers. All that lobbying, all that action in Washington, sure is filling our mailbox too, which is great. Mike from Grapevine, Texas, wrote to defend the fifteen hundred hour rule and says that he's tired of the attacks on it. Mike says. Although 1,500 hours doesn't weed out every weak pilot or pilot with poor aeronautical decision-making, it certainly weeds out a bunch. During that time, they're being watched, watched by their fellow pilots, by controllers, by FBO staff, by FAA inspectors, by random folks working at the airport. 
And if they are being reckless or operating unsafely, it is likely captured long before they set foot in a commercial airliner. Pete in Tucson, however, took the other side and commented on the Part 135 issue. As a retired career airline guy, instructor, and Czech airman, passengers should not be misled to thinking they are buying an equivalent level of safety on one of these carriers. Some may be quite good and safe, but as a segment of the industry, they meet a different standard. My wish, Ben, is that we could come up with a science-based system that would ensure we have the highest safety standards and yet provide air service in different ways for different customers, meeting as much market demand as we can. I think there's a role for specialized carriers, and I think they can, like regional airlines used to be, serve as good experience, as you said earlier, for younger pilots before they get into big jet cockpits. Congress needs to address the very high cost of pilot training to meet these very high requirements, and the DOT needs to safely allow for different models of air service because one type does not fit all. We have huge demand for air travel right now, and we should have the greatest air travel system in the world. Right now, we don't. Scott, you're right on. And my argument to those defending the 1,500-hour rule is that you're missing something in the 135 carriers. It's not like there's any 135 charter operator flying with two pilots who collectively have 500 hours, right? The Mm -hmm. right seat may have 250 hours, but the captain is significantly more experienced. And the captain runs the flight in a smaller airplane. The plane could probably fly fine with one pilot, even though no one's suggesting they do that. Lots of reasons to have two people in the cockpit. But the point is, when a younger pilot is in an apprentice role with a senior and experienced captain, all the things that they're watched by fellow pilots, by controllers, by staff, by FAA inspectors, that's all happening for them. So I think the idea, I think it benefits people who want to keep the status quo to ignore the fact that the lower pilot requirement is not for everyone in the cockpit. It's for the right seat. Excellent point, Ben. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. Your Congress mandated it. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.